Don Mockholtz, and you are listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 61, for the week of March 3rd, 2021. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, March 3rd, the moon rises just about midnight, which means we have a few hours of dark sky in the evening before moonrise. By Tuesday, March 9th, the moon will be a thin crescent in our morning sky. That sets the stage for doing a Messe Marathon next weekend, March 13th. We have another opportunity for the Messe Marathon on Saturday, April 10th. The planet Mars passes three degrees south of the Pleiades on March 2nd and 3rd. The planet Mercury is in conjunction with Jupiter on March 4th. Both will be low in the morning sky before dawn. They will be about one-third of a degree apart when closest. Jupiter will be five times brighter than Mercury. Also this week, Mercury is as far from the sun as it gets as seen from the Earth. If you are looking at that, Swing about five degrees higher in the sky and see the planet Saturn. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week, which for our purposes begins Wednesday, March 3rd through Tuesday, March 9th? It all depends upon your location. This week we have six zones. All you need to know is your latitude. At 65 degrees north, you'll not see the International Space Station at all. From 42 to 60 degrees north, you can see the International Space Station in your morning sky for the whole week, sometimes twice per night. From 34 to 42 degrees north, a narrow band, the ISS will be in your morning sky, but only for the second part of the week. From 5 degrees south to 34 degrees north, the equatorial band, you won't see it at all. From 20 to 5 degrees south, you will begin seeing the International Space Station in your evening sky, but not until a few days into our week. For instance, perhaps this weekend you'll begin to see it. Most of you south of 20 degrees south can see the ISS in your evening sky for the whole week, sometimes twice per night. At the southern part of that band, such as New Zealand and southern Argentina, it will be in your evening sky for only the first part of the week. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. There's no bright comets in our sky this week. Last week, we talked about universal time, also known as Greenwich Mean Time, 
and the time in your time zone. That is your clock time or cell phone time and depends upon your time zone and the time of the day. We use that all the time. It is based in part upon the sun's position in the sky. This week we learn about sidereal time, also known as star time. But first, let's talk about the coordinate system in the sky. Just as the Earth has coordinates, we call them longitude and latitude, with longitude running east and west and latitude running north and south, so the sky has coordinates. They are called right ascension and declination. Now, declination is much like latitude. The equator is zero degrees, and north of the equator runs from zero to 90 degrees, which is at the North Pole. South of the equator runs from zero degrees at the equator to minus 90 degrees at the South Pole. By the way, each degree is 69 miles, which equals 110 kilometers. So, on a fast freeway running north and south, you could change your latitude 10 degrees in 10 hours. At that pace, in 90 hours, just under four days, you could drive from the equator to one of the poles. And in just over two weeks, you could go all around the world. But enough about setting speed and distance records. Incidentally, whatever your latitude is, that declination runs over your head east to west. So if you live at 39 degrees north, declination plus 39 is right over your head all the time. Every day, the star Vega at 39 degrees north declination passes over your house. For part of that year, that will occur during the day, and for the other part of the year, it will be at night. Which nights? The east-west component of the sky's coordinate system is not called longitude, but right ascension. A couple of things worth remembering about right ascension. Number one, ground zero, the beginning point, is called the first point of Aries, which is now in the constellation Pisces, and it runs eastward from that point. Number two, right ascension is not measured in degrees, but in hours and minutes and even seconds. Actually, meteor shower guys and old-time sailors still refer to right ascension by degrees, but for the rest of us, it's hours, minutes, and seconds. The first point of Aries, ground zero, is zero hours, zero minutes, and zero seconds. As the Earth rotates to the east, the sky appears to move to the west. 24 hours is one day. A, a day later, ground zero is back to the same place, more or less. Actually, more, not less. The reason is that the Earth goes around the sun. So each of the 365-day year, we move about one degree. In one year, we move around the sun one time, or 360 degrees. So if ground zero, the first point of Aries, is overhead tonight at 8 o'clock, then tomorrow it's overhead at 7.56. 
So what happens four minutes later at eight o'clock? Well, zero, zero hours, zero, four minutes is overhead. In three months, six hours right ascension will be overhead. In three more months, 12 hours right ascension, also known as RA, will be overhead. And in three more months, nine months after we started at 8 p.m., 18 hours will be overhead. And by the way, at the equator, one degree equals four minutes of right ascension, and therefore objects at the equator, such as Orion's belt, move one degree in four minutes of time. That's why we have seasons in the sky, all because the Earth revolving around the sun. Now for sidereal time. Sidereal time is measured by the star's position in your sky. Whatever right ascension is on your central meridian, which is the line running overhead and through the north and south pole, that is your sidereal time. So in the example above, when ground zero, the first point of Aries, is overhead at 8 p.m., the sidereal time at your location is zero hours, zero minutes. Now this is specific to your longitude. North and south of you, all people at the same longitude have the same sidereal time. But head east or west, and your sidereal time changes. Okay. Not a trick question. The next night at 8 o'clock, what is your sidereal time? Answer, it's 0 hours 4 minutes because that is now overhead. The night after that at 8 o'clock, it is 0 hours and 8 minutes and so on. In one month, it advances 2 hours of right ascension. In 12 months, it advances, well, let's do the math, 2 hours times 12 equals 24 hours, and we're back to where we started from. That is why on your birthday each year, the stars are in the same place. Only the moon and planets will be differently placed. So why does all this matter? Well, tonight at evening twilight from my location, the sidereal time is 6 hours and 15 minutes. At your location at evening twilight, your sidereal time is, is not far off. It's within an hour of 6 hours and 15 minutes. So what's up in the sky? Well, the constellation Orion runs from 5 to 6 hours right ascension, so it will be just west, west of the meridian high in the sky. The star Cirrus, the brightest star in the sky, is at 6 hours 45 minutes, so it's still a half hour away from reaching the meridian. And here's a little secret to help you know what is in the sky when the ceridial time is 6 hours and 15 minutes. Setting in the west, exactly due west, on the equator, is 6 hours of right ascension earlier, which would be 6 minus 6, which equals 0 hours and 15 minutes. That right ascension is now setting at the equator. What is the RA rising in the east at the equator? Add 6 hours to 6.15 and you get 12 hours, 15 minutes. That's the right ascension that is rising at the equator. Three more things. Podcast 61 maps 1 and 2 cover the evening and morning sky at twilight times. 
This week, I put the right ascension and declination lines into the star map. The way to use these maps is to face south and hold them over your head. The big circle is the horizon. Everything inside the circle is above your horizon. Now, looking at the map, for what sidereal time was each drawn? And can you find the rise and set points at the equator? Secondly, at 6 hours 15 minutes sidereal time, 12 hours 15 minutes right ascension is rising in the east at the equator. Since I live north of the equator, areas beyond 12 hours 15 minutes are visible to me above the horizon. For instance, all of the Big Dipper running all the way to 14 hours right ascension is also above the horizon. So north of the equator, I pick up additional hours and minutes, more sky. On the other hand, objects south of the equator at right ascension 12 hours 15 minutes have not yet risen. And if they're far enough south, they will never rise. All this is reversed for those living in the southern hemisphere. And third, how do you determine your sidereal time? You could go out at night and see what's overhead, what's on the central meridian, the imaginary line running north-south overhead. In the old days, a transit telescope was used for that. Another way is to get an app for your smartphone. It takes the present sidereal time at Greenwich, a calculation we will not go into here, calculates your longitude and your date and time, and presto, produces the current sidereal time for you at that location. Now I want to tell you a true story. Something that has happened in the comic community over the last few days. There are many online groups that you can join and then chat with other astronomers with similar interest. I belong to a group called Comets-ML. It's part of the Groups.io network. It has 587 members from around the world. Now, would you like to count the number of countries involved in this story? This whole story unfolded in that Comets-ML group over five days' time. It all began in the afternoon of Thursday, February 25th, when Michael Matazzo of Swan Hill, Victoria, Australia, reported a potential Swan Comet candidate, magnitude 11 to 12, that's rather faint, and he asked if anyone could help confirm it. He provided the positions of the object from the Swan images. A few notes to fill in the background. SWAN is a camera system on the SOHO satellite that orbits the sun and monitors the solar activity. SOHO is about a million miles closer to the sun than we are, and SOHO images are downloaded to the Earth frequently. The SOHO spacecraft has a camera that picks up everything within 15 degrees of the sun and amateur astronomers are always finding small comets hitting the sun. Over 4,000 have been found on SOHO images. The SOHO spacecraft also has a system that covers the rest of the sky with a few gaps, 
and comets are sometimes found on those images. It is called SWAN. More than a dozen SWAN comets have been found, and Michael Metazel has found most of them. The comets are all named SWAN, since the person finding the comet does not control nor own the instrument used to find it. These comets are not named after their discoverers, but instead are all named SWAN. And Michael is asking for someone to see it from Earth, to observe it and get some accurate positions. This would do two things. One, it would confirm that it exists. And two, it would give us enough accurate positions to produce a reasonable orbit so that it can be followed. With an accurate orbit, we can determine if it's coming or going, if it will cause any meteor showers, and if it's related to any previously known comets. The SWAN images alone are not accurate enough to produce an accurate orbit. Sixteen minutes later, Sam Dean of the United States of America then provided a preliminary orbit for it based upon SWAN images. That same day, Rob Matson, USA, reported that he saw those images on SWAN but was waiting for one more image before reporting it. Sam Dean then reported that if this orbit is correct, it might be similar to a comet seen in 1686 as some of the orbital elements are similar. Rob Matson then suggested the outside chance that this could be a Sungrazer comet, but if it was, then, then probably Soho would have seen it. He also mentioned that getting accurate positions from Swan is difficult. The accuracy is about a half a degree, and the time of the image exposure is no better than plus or minus 12 hours, and the brightness, the magnitude, is, is only a guess. Sam Dean suggested that he would try a visual search that night, Thursday, February 25th. Rob Matson said he had someone in Southern California who would try to see it. That night, I, Don Mockholtz, USA, went out with my 18 and a half inch, 0.46 meter reflector, and I looked for it, but I did not see it. I was fighting twilight, low altitude, it was only eight degrees high and less, and a nearly full moon in the eastern sky. I suggested that on Sunday night, February 28th, moonrise will be after evening twilight, giving us a good chance of seeing it. All of the above activity occurred in a few short hours on Thursday, February 25th. So what happened the next day? Rob Matson reported a new position for the comet from newly released SWAN images for February 24th. Remember, this is Friday, February 26th, so this image was taken two days earlier. He also checked images from last year when the SOHO satellite was in a similar location to see if any internal reflections or sensor artifacts would be causing this image, that maybe this was not a real comet. But his study showed no such images last year, so this appears to be a real object. Michael Matasso, who started this whole thing, then attached a search chart for that night.
Rob Matson reported that a new image was received from Swan for February 25th, and this shows the object continuing to move slowly. Sam Dean came out with another orbit based on the updated Swan images. This particular orbit had it approaching Earth to within 5 million miles or 20 times farther from us than is the moon in early March. On Saturday, February 27th, Michael Matzel issued another search chart, and several major developments occurred on February 27th. Sam Dean then suggested that he had misinterpreted the positions from Swan, and his orbit may be way off. With so little data over only a few days and the inaccurate positions from Swan, everybody who was publishing orbits knew and stated outright these are probably not very accurate orbits, but this is the best that we have. Robert Matson then communicated all of the Swan image positions. Mayak Meyer of Germany. Now, he runs the Comets ML group. He then provided a couple of orbit solutions. Robert Matson then produced an orbit that he calculated. Nicolas Lafadu, a noted astrophotographer from France, then stated that he had photographed the area with a 200-millimeter lens, but, but he could not find any comet. He posted his image. Michael Jaeger of Austria then reported that he had imaged four adjoining fields, each two by three degrees, and he did not find any comet down to magnitude 13. He later suggested one of three things. It is out of his fields of view. It could be diffused and uncondensed and just was not picked up on the photographs, or maybe it doesn't exist. Now, at this point, all we had were swan images of this object, but no one had been able to confirm that it was there. Michael Matassel found a possible candidate for the comet on Nicholas's image at about 12th magnitude. Sam Dean then tried fitting an orbit to that position and, and published three new orbits, none of which he stated seemed to be very reasonable. Robert Matson then published a photo from the DSS of this area showing no faint stars near the area of the suspect. Next, Alan Hale, USA, discoverer of Comet Hale-Bopp, and a very accomplished comet observer and comet expert, suggested that the suspected object on Nicholas photographed is right where a faint star of 12.7 magnitude should be. Perhaps maybe that is a star and not a comet, as some stars appear a bit fuzzy due to low altitude. Rob Matson agreed. Then Warashut Boonplad of Thailand, who has discovered many Soho comets, agreed with Alan Hale that the suspect is probably a star. Andrew Pierce, a well-versed comet observer from Australia, gave supporting evidence that the suspect is, in fact, a star. All of that happened on February 27th. So by this time, we're two and a half days in. No one has seen the comet from the Earth. No one has been able to successfully photograph it from the Earth.
On February 28th, Gerald Ryman, an accomplished astrophotographer born in Austria, posted an overlay of Nicholas's photo with a photographic star atlas showing a star in the location of the suspect. Mayak Meyer of Germany attempted to visually see the comet, but he failed to see it. He suggested it's fainter than magnitude 9.5, and he also published a new orbit. An early orbit suggests that this comet, if it exists, could produce meteors in mid-March, but later orbits show that it would not. The break in the case came from a post by Gerald Ryman, a good friend of Jaeger who lives in Austria. He reported that Michael Jaeger had phoned him that he had indeed imaged the comet at 1800 hours universal time on the 28th, and the position is 23 hours, 30 minutes, plus 13 degrees, 20 minutes, at about magnitude 10. Michael was still out in the field, and when he gets home, he would produce accurate positions for the comet. Luca Buzzi of Italy used a 33-inch telescope, 0.84 meters, to obtain some images, and he published his position. He knew where to point his telescope from the message about Michael Jaeger's position. Mayak Meyer published a new orbit based upon, in part, the positions by Christus Sarzaki, who also made confirmation images. Then, with Luca Buzzi's position, he published a new orbit. The comet then became known as Swan 21D. Alan Hale of New Mexico used Mayer's latest orbit, and he found an image of the comet on Nicholas's image the day before. Now, this was the same photograph where people had thought they had seen the comet, but they were mistaken. It was a star. However, elsewhere on that photograph, the comet was visible, but barely visible. Nick James in England Nick James is the director of the comet section of the British Astronomical Association, then picked up the comet with his camera and a telephoto lens, and he published his positions of the comet. Both Luca Buzzi and Michael Yeager published their images of the comet on the Internet. Sam Dean published another orbit and an ephemeris to indicate where the comet can be found in the future. Then there was some discussion as to whether the comet will appear in the field of view of another satellite known as Stereosehi. Well, it depends upon which orbital path the comet is taking. Robert Haver of Italy published an orbit indicating that this comet orbits the sun every 323 years, but again, it was a very preliminary orbit. It has some similarities with the comet of 1686, and if it has this orbit, it will pass about 5 million miles from the Earth in about a week. Next, this discussion occurred. Would this likely not be the comet of 1686 because it's too faint? Could it be a fragment of the comet of 1686? Mayak Meyer then published another orbit with updated data, but still a preliminary one that does not fit all the data points very well. On Sunday night, February 28th, I took out my 18-inch, 0.46-meter telescope to see if I could see it visually, as no one had yet been able to do that. I watched the predicted location of the comet, 
for about 20 minutes from before twilight ended until it set behind the hills at an altitude of 2.1 degrees. I saw stars to magnitude 11 easily and sometimes could suspect an object where the comet should have been, but it was a fleeting appearance. Sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't quite see it, and I could not hold it with direct vision, so I did not report it. All of these things happened on Sunday, February 28th. On March 1st, Dennis Bogazinski of Scotland posted an image of the comet he took that evening. Also on March 1st, Francis Kugel of France published some accurate positions that he obtained from his images of the comet. Then Roberto Haver of Italy published additional positions of the comet from March 1st imaging. By now, images are pouring in and more and more accurate orbits are being calculated. The latest orbits suggest that the comet is on the far side of the sun from us and it will be getting fainter. So that's the story. An exciting week on Comets-ML. Many people working together to track down a suspected comet. People from 10 countries, by my count, all in a day's work. Or, or, or is it? Michael Matasso, who started this whole thing, how much did he get paid for scanning those swan images each day? Sam Dean cranking out orbits. What do you think? Big paycheck or small paycheck? Michael Yeager, who commuted to his observing site several times, setting up equipment, took images, measured any positions he found, and communicated them to the group. We are using the services of one of the best comet photographers ever. How much did he earn for his work on this project? The observations, orbits, and opinions on this object all took time for the many talented and experienced individuals involved. Who employs these people? Nearly without exception, no one employs them. They all worked for free as amateur astronomers. Amateur astronomers from around the world working around the clock to confirm a comet. It doesn't get better than that. Change of subject. As you know, I discuss comets in this podcast, also the moon's phase each week. I discuss the planets. We highlight galaxies, clusters, and nebula to observe many of the weeks. I talk about the sun and the International Space Station. What is the one item that we have not discussed in over a year of podcast? Asteroids, also known as minor planets. I have nothing against asteroids, so let's get to them. The first asteroid, Cirrus, was discovered on January 1st, 1801. At that time, it was considered to be a planet, and its orbit filled the gap between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. Then, the next year, a second asteroid, Pallas, was discovered. Okay, now, now we had two of these small planets. Then two years later, in 1804, a third asteroid was discovered. It was named Juno. Finally, in 1807, a fourth one was found, and it was named Vesta, and that's the asteroid we'll see this week. 
So we had what became known as the four big asteroids. These are giant rocks that orbit the sun. 38 years later, the fifth asteroid was discovered. Then the discovery rate increased. Now there's over 1 million known asteroids, and a dozen more new ones are found each night. Asteroids are small compared to planets. The largest known asteroid, Cirrus, 580 miles across, that's 940 kilometers across, is about one quarter the diameter of our moon. Pallas and Vesta are about one-eighth the size of our moon. Vesta can get as bright as magnitude 5.3 and can conceivably be seen with the unaided eye. This time around, it's magnitude 6.0. Do you hear a challenge coming up? Yes, this week we're going to try to see an asteroid with the unaided eye, and with binoculars, and with a telescope. Vesta was visited by NASA's Dawn spacecraft a decade ago. It had orbited the asteroid for more than a year, photographing and mapping the surface. Vesta has a crater nearly as big as the asteroid itself, and this crater was caused by a collision with another asteroid millions of years ago. The collision threw lots of material into space and spun off several more asteroids. Podcast 61 Map 3 shows the position of the asteroid Vesta for the next few weeks. It is in the constellation Leo, and Vesta is near opposition, meaning we are between it and the sun, and it rises about the time the sun sets. So wait a couple hours after sunset before observing it. Try seeing it with the unaided eye. Go out a couple hours after the sky darkens, but before moonrise, and give it a go. Leo is in the eastern sky. Use Podcast 61, Map 1 and 3 to find it. It is presently magnitude 6.0 and passing through a part of the sky without too many stars. Now, finding it first in binoculars may help you to find it with the unaided eye. Very few people have ever seen an asteroid with the unaided eye, so here's your chance. No, you do not get an award for seeing it. Through binoculars, the asteroid should be easily visible, but hold them steady for the best view. With a telescope, Vesta should be an easy target, and since it's a very tiny disk, it may not twinkle as much as the stars do. Presently, it's 1.4 times farther away from us than is the Sun, so you won't see any detail on the asteroid, and you'll probably not see it as a disk. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? Mars is closing in on the Pleiades in the evening sky. Mercury is approaching Jupiter in the morning sky. And the asteroid Vesta is in the constellation Leo. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 61 for March 3rd, 2021. I'm Don Makos. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmakos.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com, two H's. You can contact me at dontheastronomer at gmail.com. Once again, dontheastronomer at gmail.com.
www.pod-willing.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. We will discuss what's up in the sky and we'll look at a few new objects. And I'll talk about a discussion I heard in 1969 that helped set the course for my life. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.